Well, hey, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, my name is Cody Wason. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, just want to say uh, welcome. And uh, tonight, I am fully believing those songs that we were singing in worship, um, talking about things change when the presence of God enters a room, and healing comes, and freedom comes. And as we jump into a new series that I'm going to kind of explain for us uh, here uh, tonight, I just want to start off by saying that's what we're believing for tonight. Tonight, I am believing that we will encounter the presence of God, not only in worship, but through His Word. And I am believing that we're going to get set free tonight, that people are going to encounter the presence of God. That's why we want to, that's, I mean, if you're not coming to church to encounter God, I think you're doing it wrong. And if that's, if we're not setting us up to encounter the presence of God and to go deep in His Word, I think we're doing it wrong. So, welcome to church. Um, yeah, so as you can see on the screen behind me, we are jumping into a series called Jesus Stories. It is as simple and straightforward as it sounds. Uh, for the next six weeks, we're going to be pulling out six different moments of the life and ministry of Jesus and just simply focusing on uh, that story and how can we apply it today uh, to what uh, our life here in 2019. So I'm excited to kick us off uh, tonight. Next week, you guys have the privilege and honor of hearing from our women's pastor, Elizabeth Pearson. Uh, and that's going to be awesome. In a couple of weeks, we'll have our college pastor, Chris Durock. But it's going to be six weeks of, I'll, I'll properly introduce Chris uh, at the appropriate time. That was, this was not it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, but we're just going to focus on Jesus uh, uh, here tonight. And I, wanted, I thought I'd kick off the series, um, but first off, by explaining why we're even doing the series. I mean, we're, we just spent a long time talking about a really powerful subject. If you've been with us, we walked through the first 11 chapters of Acts, and we looked at the early church, and we looked at the ministry and the mission and the DNA and the values of those first believers that became known as the first church. And uh, it's been, I, I hope you liked it. I loved it. Acts is an incredible uh, book, and I encourage you to keep reading it. Um, we've been in, before that we were at Easter, before that we were at We the Kingdom, and hopefully we're always talking about Jesus. But as I, stopped, as I stepped back and looked, I thought, hey, we haven't just simply talked about the gospel in a little while. We haven't just simply said, let's focus on Jesus and not other things. The church is a really good thing to focus on, especially at church, and DNA, and values, and kingdom. It's all really good things to focus on, but we're here to focus and center our heart's attention on the person of Jesus and the stories that we find of him in the gospel. So tonight, I'm going to kick us off by looking at the first major sermon that Jesus ever preached. And it's called, it's a very famous passage, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm actually going to hone in just a little bit and focus primarily on the first uh, 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and that those are known as the Beatitudes. And so stick with me if you're like ready to check out, if you've heard the, that this passage preached on before. If whatever, I think God's got something new for us in it uh, tonight. But if you know me, you know I like to give a few preambles before I jump into the message. And so uh, I want, before we dive into the passage and start looking at the text, I think there's a very common uh, error that we can uh, fall into, a trap, so to speak, and miss the power and the intent of what, of what Jesus is saying here in the Beatitudes. And so I want to first and foremost uh, talk about this idea of morality. So I think it's easy to look at Jesus. It's easy to look at the Gospels. It's easy to look at, at the Bible through the lens of morality. What I mean by that is this is what morality teaches. 
Morality is any teaching that would tell you that if you follow a certain specific set of guidelines, you will be saved. Morality teaches that if you will be moral, and if you will just do, uh, do these things and not do these things, you will be saved. And it's ridiculous. And God hates it. And if you look through the, the arc of the story of Scripture, it's nowhere to be found. Now, yes, there is, a, there is an element of the code of ethics that as disciples of Jesus we're called to live by. We're going to dig into that. But if we look at the Beatitudes here uh, for the next 30 minutes, I think we'd be doing ourselves a huge disservice if we just looked at it through the lens of morality and created an, a new updated list of checkboxes to check off in order to feel good about ourselves. We don't do morality here. Jesus isn't here to make us moral people. He's not here to make us good people. He's not here to make us uh, self-actualized and the best version of ourselves. He's here to save us and set us free and set us on a path of abundant life. You with me? And if we come into this and we're like, I know how to do morality. I know how to check off the boxes. I know how to avoid the big stuff, the big bad stuff. I don't do any of that. I'm a moral person. I'm a good person. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we look at the Beatitudes, and we just, we just go there again, I think we're missing the power behind what Jesus is doing. So let's take off the morality lens, okay? And we're going to look at just the story of the Beatitudes for what they are. Can I grab that water, Scott? Cool. Oh, nice. Thank you. Scott Steinhouse. Uh-oh. It's one of those. I'm going to give it back to Scott because I don't, we'll see how this goes. Okay. Um, before, okay, last preamble before I jump into the passage. Uh, there's a reason I picked the Beatitudes to kick off this series looking at the uh, moments from the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's because I think when we look at that through the lens of morality, I think that's why a lot of people get burnt out on the church. And they get burnt out on Jesus, and they get burnt out on Jesus' followers. Because our message is like, hey, you need hope, you need life, you need some grace, you need mercy, your life's a mess, you're broken, you're addicted, you're stuck. You need to know that there's, a, there's hope that this thing could get better. And then people come to church, and they're like, oh, another just set of rules. I don't, I don't, get, to do, I don't get to experience any of that until I, I check off all these boxes. And people come and they sit in the back and, and they go, wait, this is, this is what you guys are so excited about? This is why you wanted me to come? I can get check boxes. I can get rules anywhere else. I thought the church was different. So I think as we dive into this series, we have to dive in with the mindset that we're not here to check off boxes. We're not here to be moral. We're here to, to meet with Jesus and, and, get, and get set free. For some of us, get saved. So some of us experience that grace and that mercy, and that love, and that power for the first time, some for the hundredth time. But we're here to meet with Jesus and not just do a, 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 another set of boxes. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And it's okay if you don't have a Bible with you. It will be up on the screen. Again, the context here, this is the first major sermon uh, that Jesus gives as he's kicking off his ministry. When you, and when you look at it through a historical context, He's gathered a crowd for the first real time in, 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 in Scripture. 
He's done some things. He's been baptized. He's been tempted. He's called the disciples. But this is the first time he's gathered a crowd, and he's kind of like giving his inauguration speech. Like, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what the kingdom's about. So there's power behind it when we think through there's a reason why Jesus kicked off his ministry, kicked off his sermon series, so to speak, with this. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the, crowd, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we're going to stop. We're going to go one at a time through these, and we're just going to stop and go, that's a really powerful passage to read, but like, wh- what does it mean? I mean, this is like the first like the moment that Jesus opens his mouth and he's like, here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's so easy for us to read that and be like, oh, that's so good. That's so good. I don't know what it means, but it sounds good. It's powerful. It's like this whole poor thing. It's talking about the spirit. Like it's, but we don't know what it means. And, and as I go through each one of these, we're just going to pause and we're going to look at what does this mean for us in 2019? How can we apply this to our life? And with the morality lens gone, here's my encouragement to you. As we go through these Beatitudes, that this would be a mirror that is held up, that you and I might look at ourselves in the mirror and say, not, oh, I've got to do this to be saved. Oh, hey, here's, here's a bunch of things I don't do well and i got to do better. But we would hold up a mirror and say, oh, I need to grow in that. That's what I need to be transformed. Jesus, I... I'm not experiencing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not feeling that. And I need to grow. It's an opportunity. The mirror that's being held up to us in the Beatitudes is an invitation to seek areas of transformation in our life. You with me? Okay. So as we read through these and talk through what they mean and what they are, honestly, for most of us, myself included, as we read through this, it's going to be a lot of, ooh, that's not me. And the, and the reality is, it's going to be really easy for you to be, that's not me, and feel condemned, and feel like I got it wrong, I missed it, Jesus wouldn't be happy with me, he wouldn't, but instead we get to throw that to the side, we're not condemned in Christ Jesus, but let there be conviction that there are areas of growth for us, there's areas of life for us that we haven't gone to yet. There's places with Jesus and with people and with relationships and with how we see ourselves and how we see God and how we interact with each other that we haven't tapped into yet. And this mirror is being held up and said, look, that's how you pray. Pray into that place of growth. Pray pray into that place of transformation. Okay, you with me? All right, I think you're with me. These couple up here are. All right. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit. The humble heart that lives in a consistent reality, understanding its need for God. We see, we live in a culture and a world, and, and, and I think it would probably most uh, time throughout the history of humankind, uh, we've lived in this idea uh, where we celebrate strength of every kind. Physical strength, emotional strength, intellectual strength. We are a people that want to be strong. We want to be strong for ourselves. We want to be strong for our spouses, for our friends. We want to look good. We want to look the part. We want to look like we have it together. We want to look like people could look, like want to follow us, know us, trust us, love us, all those things. 
And the first words out of Jesus' mouth is flipping the script. It's like, hey, it's not that fake strength that you think you have that's going to bless you. Actually, it's the poor in spirit that realize that without me, without God, without the Spirit of God, without the power of God, without the grace of God, you don't really have anything. It's the poor in spirit. It's the, the ones that are willing to walk humble and say, yeah, I, I, I might think I have lots of stuff to offer this world and people and relationships and the church and God, but the reality is I have nothing. Like I'm poor. The opposite of poor is rich, right? So, so the, the, the poor, the ones that say like, what I have isn't that much. That's the first words out of Jesus' mouth. It's flipping the script on our mindset that to be accepted by people and by God, we have to be strong. You don't have to be strong. Actually, you need to be poor in spirit. You need to be honest with your weaknesses. And I think this is speaking to a reliance on Jesus. Amen? That's poor in spirit. All right, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, like you read this and you're like, oh. Some, of, some people probably made like a, like a, like just breathe out really loud and, and don't really know why. But that just sounds good. I, I want to be comforted. Teach me how to mourn. I'll do it. Now, this could go a lot of different ways. When you look at mourning in Scripture, there's different definitions. There's different ways to go about it. The way I want to focus on it tonight is this, this idea of what the Bible refers to as godly sorrow. So this isn't referring to just people that are sad will be comforted. You don't need to follow Jesus to comfort someone who's sad. Okay? So what does it mean that those who mourn will be comforted? Those who have a godly sorrow, I think this is referring, Jesus is speaking to those that feel the weight and the power of sin in their life and in other people's lives. When you realize the destruction that sin brings, when you mourn, when, 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 you, when, you, when you sin and you don't immediately go to, oh no, I can't tell God, I can't tell anyone else, I messed up, I got to protect myself and be strong. But you instead you realize, this, this is not good for me and this is not good for the people in my life. This is not leading me towards Jesus and towards wholeness and towards freedom. When you start to mourn the fact that you sinned, okay, not be condemned by it, but mourn the power of it, then you can be comforted because the, the opposite of that is when you don't, when your heart has grown cold to the power and the penalty and the weight of sin, when your heart has grown cold to what sin does in your heart and in your life and in your mind and in those people around you, then there's no way for you to be comforted because you don't realize you need to. So Jesus is, is like, hey, you need to be weak and you need to be willing to mourn when you mess up. And not go like, you know, we can go all sorts of different ways. There's balance and everything. I think what we're talking about here is, do we understand the weight of sin? Sin's a, sin's a, a, a dirty word in our culture. Sin, it, no one wants to talk about what it is or what it isn't. No one wants to bring it up. But the reality when you read the scripture is that we have to understand what sin does in our life. It is not some, like, story for kids to keep them uh, to get to go to bed at night or to get them to eat their vegetables. Or it's not a scare tactic to get people to follow a bunch of rules. When we realize sin, whether it's small in our mind or big in our mind or whatever, it robs us. It takes something from us. 
it causes destruction in our relationship with God. It hurts others. It hurts ourselves. And we can't be comforted until we admit that. You with me? So Jesus is starting out pretty strong, I would say. He's like, hey, you need to be weak. And you need to acknowledge that when you sin, it, it, it can't, there's a weight to it. And you need to bring that, you know, bring that to him, bring that to the community. This isn't where we sit in mourning. But the promise is we'll be comforted when we acknowledge, hey, I've, I've sinned, and, and this is destroying something in my heart. It's destroying something in my family. It's destroying something in my relationship with God. And we bring that to him, and we mourn it, and we receive comfort. All right, Matthew 5.5. 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I mean, once again, I think Jesus is just holding up this mirror to uh, our pride. So I don't know how many of you guys know the famous definition of meekness, strength under control. So for some of you that look like you did know that, for others, that's a very famous definition of what it means, what meekness means, strength under control. Being able to accomplish something, being, uh, being able to do something, being able to clown someone, being able to, to make someone else look silly because you've got all your stuff together, being able to be the smartest person in the room, the best athlete at the game, whatever it is, meekness is being able to do that but not needing to. And it all ties together. When we, when we are humble, when we are poor in spirit, we don't need to be the best. We don't need to have all the strength in the room. We don't need to be the alpha male. We don't need to be in control. We don't need to be the leader because we realize that meekness and poor in spirit kind of, kind of tie together. We don't really have much to offer. Meekness is saying, hey, you, you're strong. Well, you think you're really smart. You're really kind. You're really good. You're, you're really saved. But what did you do to earn that? Like, what did you do to be able to, 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 like, like, to walk around and think that you're the biggest, baddest person on the block? The meek, the ones that are like, you know what, I might have something to offer here, but I don't, I, I, in reality, I don't have much. And whatever I have is from God anyway. I'm like nothing without God. I'm nothing without reliance on the Spirit. My kindness, my character, I can, I can operate for a while out of my flesh I can be good and kind and, and I can do all sorts of things and be smart and successful and talented and all these things and I can operate on my own strength but the reality is I don't have anything to offer of significance that will last in this life or in eternity without the presence of God in my life, without the Spirit of God. I'm nothing. So it's like, hey, you, there's a lot of really talented people in this room. I'm looking around. I'll try not to make eye contact because that means if I don't make eye contact, you'll think that I don't think you're talented. So much gifting and talent, and and just like this room's full. The meek are the ones that are like, I don't need it. I don't need to be, because actually, when I try to be the strong one and I try to be the best, God doesn't get any glory. The meek shall inherit the earth. The meek, he, Jesus is holding up a mirror and he's saying, if you're not willing to humble yourself. And, and live under control and live in light of what you've been received from heaven, you're missing it. We're nothing without the presence of God. Matthew 5, 6. <laughs> oh, I like this one. 
This is good. They're all good. This is really good. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay, here's where I want to go right off the bat. It's a promise. When we hunger and thirst, we will be satisfied. It's a promise. And what it means is hunger and thirst is what satisfies you. It's not your talent. It's not your performance. It's not your gifting. It's not your character. Those things are great, but they will not satisfy you. The only thing, according to this passage, that will satisfy your need for the living God is if you will hunger and thirst for it. Now, we're really good at making ourselves think we're hungry, like in real life. But there's no one in this room that's better at making themselves think they're hungry than my daughter, Eleanor, who's actually not in this room. She's always hungry. She's, I don't know, I think she's, she's in one of the rooms in that building. She's hungry right now, I guarantee it. Or at least she thinks she is. But having been her father for a few years, I've caught on to a few things. She's not always hungry. A lot of times she's bored. She's not always hungry. Sometimes she's just being, she's, she's in an emotional state. And already at four, I'm seeing her turn to food. We're really good at convincing ourselves that we're hungry. I mean, I, I walk through life with Elnor, and, and there are times where I'm like, I can just call it out. You, I, you are not hungry. You're bored. That conversation doesn't end well. <laughs> or I'll just notice, hey, you just think you're hungry because you normally have snack right now? But you just ate a huge lunch. You are not hungry, but you're just used to eating right now. So you think you're hungry. And so you're sitting here screaming at me that you're hungry. I'm telling you, child, you are not hungry. And I know that for a fact. You and I are really good at convincing ourselves that we're hungry. We're really good at making ourselves think that what we're doing is coming from a place of genuine hunger and thirst. When in reality, a lot of times we're just bored. And we're just doing the same things over and over. And we're going to church because that's what you do. And you, you, you open up scripture in the morning and you hope you flip it open to a good passage because you don't know what you're doing. And you just point and you're like, I hope this works. And you put on some worship in the car. And you just get in these routines. And I'm preaching to myself here. I'm not preaching at you. I'm with you in this. We get in the routines and we think that we're acting out of a place of hunger and thirst when really we're just bored. And then we get frustrated when we're not being satisfied. Because we can't be satisfied. When, when we've convinced ourselves we're hungry, when we're really bored, there's no satisfying coming from that. I think, if nothing else from this scripture, I think the mirror that's being held up for me is I got to learn what it looks like to really hunger and thirst. I got to i got to realize what it looks like to really be passionate about needing the presence of God in my life. About really worshiping when, when I worship. And I'm not talking about whenever I sing songs or when I'm standing up here on the front row or when Nolan hits the guitar. I'm talking about like when, I, when I'm worshiping, am I actually engaged or am I just doing what I always do? And I flip worship on my phone and then I start getting ready for the day and I don't even listen, but it's on in the background. And I'm like, hey, this is going to work. I'm going to be satisfied. 
two and a half worship songs that I can't tell you what they just sang or who they were or what they were, they were, but they were on in the background. And then I go throughout my day and I don't open up scripture and I get frustrated because I'm like, God, you're not meeting with me and I don't feel like you're real in my life anymore and I'm not, I'm not encountering you the way I used to. And then he just holds up the mirror. He's like, when's the last time you actually hungered for me and thirsted for me? There's a, you can tell a difference between a hungry person and a bored person when the food hits the table. What do you do? When Eleanor is bored, she doesn't touch it. I make her a whole meal, and she just looks at me like, great, I'm going to go outside. When she's actually hungry, I can't, I can't keep up with her. There's an invitation for you and I. We've got to go. I don't have the answer for it. I don't have the pastor like, here's what it means to be hunger, hungry and thirsty for the presence of God. Write it down and do it. I think we've got to search our souls, and we've got to ask God. We've got to say, will you ignite a fire in me that's based on the reality that I realize I need to have you. I can't operate in my, without the presence of God. I can't make it in this life just pretending day in and day out to, have, to be meeting with God and have what I need. We're not going to make it. We've got to learn what it looks like to get desperate to taste and see that He is good and that that tasting and that seeing that He is good would drive us to hunger. Amen? I'm just, okay, this isn't in my notes, but I want to say it. And I can, so I'm going to say it. I think there's some of us in the room that if, if, you, if we were to have a conversation, you'd say, yeah, because you don't understand. Like, I... I am hungering, and I am thirsting, and I need Jesus, and I need an encounter with him, and I need to read the word, and I'm opening my word, and I am pursuing, and I'm trying, and I'm getting nothing. Here's what I'll say to that. Again, I don't have like a cheesy, put it on your tailgate, a church answer for you to solve that problem. I don't know why there's seasons that some of us go through when we're hungering and we're thirsting and we're desperate and we need Jesus and it just doesn't feel like he's there and we just feel like we're, it's what's called a desert season by a lot of people. We just feel like we're just in the desert and he's not bringing us anything and we don't get it. And I can tell you this right now, I don't have the answer. But when I look at scripture and when I look at my own life and when I look at the people that I've walked with that have gone through seasons, some short, some years, where they are plugging away, they are pursuing Jesus, they are trusting Him, they need Him, and they're not feeling like they're getting anything new, but they're just plugging away. If you're in the room and that's you tonight, all I know is it's a setup. I don't know why. We'll get to heaven and we can ask God together. Like, why? Why did, you, why, did you, why did it take a year? Why did it take three months? Why did I not feel your presence or feel like I was with you for, for so long? I don't know. But when I look at Scripture, it's a promise. And the people, the, when God's people were in the desert, they had to learn what it looked like to live daily off of whatever they needed. God would give them bread and food for that day. It was called manna. And the story of the people of God, they're in the desert and they're confused and they're lost. And God is providing every morning, He's providing manna. He's providing what they need for that day. I think, in the, and when I look at my own life, 
there are seasons where I am so used to feasting. Like in my life, I'm used to eating so much and then not being hungry for like 12 hours and then feasting again and then going, just having really bad eating habits, let's be honest. I think for some of us, God's like, I, I have to teach you what it looks like to live and trust me for what you need for just today. We get so caught up in, I need this, I need you to define this season for me, and I need you to help me in this season. I need to feast, and I need, I don't know what, where I'm going, and he's just saying, if you'll just ask me for today, and then when you wake up tomorrow, ask me for tomorrow, if I can get a group of people that are willing to day by day trust me, it's a setup for revival. So I don't know if there's anyone in the room that feels that, but be encouraged. It's a promise. If you hunger and thirst, you will be satisfied. I can't tell you the date you'll be satisfied. I don't know. But he hasn't left you. He hasn't abandoned you because he, he won't abandon himself. We live with the Spirit of God living inside of us. He hasn't forgotten about himself. He hasn't forgotten about you. And maybe it's just a day-by-day thing. Okay. Matthew 5-7. Before we jump into it, I'm going to throw out two fancy words to make people think I'm really smart, but they're really, really simple when you break them down. So these first couple, when you look at poor in spirit, those who mourn, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, a lot of those have to do with the the, uh, condition of our spirit, the posture of our heart. These next couple, I think Jesus is holding up the mirror for, and here's the two fancy words our orthodoxy, and our orthopraxy. Y'all think I'm real smart. I know, I got a whistle from David Drees. Look at that. Okay, really simply, orthodoxy is what we believe. It's what we believe to be truth. I mean, this is like the most simplified version I can give you in this moment. Orthodoxy, what we believe. And orthopraxy is uh, literally translates into uh, right practice. So what are, are we practicing what we believe? So you can do a lot of things and have the right orthodoxy. You can understand Scripture and understand lots of really great things, but are we living it out in our daily practice? Okay, that's what I feel like Jesus is highlighting in these next three. So here we go, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We sang about mercy tonight. And again, I'm just kind of pressing in, and like, we really mean what we sing, but I think we got to know what we're singing. So some of us are in the room, maybe, and you're like, I don't even know what mercy actually means. I mean, I, my, I, I have it tattooed on my wrist, but I don't fully know what it means. So here we go. Really simply, mercy is having the right and the ability to judge, punish, or condemn, but choosing not to. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. Oh, there's a song happening right now. I don't know what you deserve, but I'm not going to give it to you. I can say that because I think I'm friends with the person that did it. Okay. Here we go. So mercy, having the right and the ability to judge, punish, or condemn, but choosing not to. So the mercy of heaven is we don't get what we deserve. That's the mercy that when we sing about 
We're singing about the reality that what we deserve as broken, sinful, messed up people is not what the gospel offers us. It's the mercy of heaven to look down and say, you deserve death, you deserve condemnation, you deserve the cross, but instead, I'm going to put that on Jesus and I'm going to give you a way out. That's the gospel and that's mercy. I don't even know if I need to elaborate on the mirror that Jesus is holding up for you and I. In light of the mercy of heaven, in light of the mercy of the gospel that you and I have been shown a way out, we didn't get what we deserved. How many of us are living merciful lives? How many are we being quick to give mercy? Or are we seeking to give punishment or to hold people to standards? And when you mess up, you know what? You got to get punished and you got to, you know, you hurt me and this is how I'm going to hurt you back. And, and you know, I'm not talking about literally like with kids or punishment or, or I'm like in relationships. Are you being merciful in your relationships? Or are you seeking to give people what you think is theirs, what they have coming? It's a mirror that's being held up and it's basically saying, if you know the gospel, but you're not merciful in how you interact with people, there's a big breakdown here. And I don't know if you fully understand the gospel. Because it doesn't make sense that you can fully understand the mercy you've received and yet withhold mercy from others. That's Matthew 5, 7. He's going to keep going on it. Matthew 5, 8. He's getting it with this one, the pure in heart. So if you've been around our church family for any length of time, you've heard me say multiple times, usually at the end of service, that Jesus is, is and always has been after your heart. Amen. But this is radical to the, in this moment to this group of people he's teaching to. He's, group, he's teaching to a group of Jews who grew up learning how to act right how to avoid the big bad things. They had things like the Ten Commandments. They had things like 600 and something Levitical laws that they had memorized, most of them. They had mastered the art of not doing bad stuff. And Jesus looks at him and he says, actually, it's the pure in heart that are going to see God. It's the pure in heart that are going to encounter me. It's the pure in heart that are going to get what they need. And he's flipping the script once again. And again, it's a really easy mirror for us to hold up to ourselves today. I'm like really happy that most of us, hopefully in this room, haven't murdered anyone. Haven't committed adultery. Haven't done the big bad stuff that you think of when you think of the big bad stuff. But Jesus is like, hey, it's great. I'm, kudos to you. Kudos, you didn't murder anyone, but you, you really think you've got this thing nailed down because you're living daily, you've just become okay with anger in your heart. Like you go around and you just mock and you hate people in your heart and you joke about it and you think it's okay and you're just so, you got a quick trigger and a short temper and you think it's okay because you won't, you won't do the bad stuff. You won't, you won't go off the rails too bad. And you'll be okay in the lens of morality. You'll be able to check the box. No, nope, I didn't murder anyone. But you're living just gross, hateful, vengeful, angry lives. 
I mean, we could go down the list. He's like, hey, great. I'm really proud of you guys. You haven't, like, like slept with everyone you saw. You haven't committed adultery. You haven't done all this weird stuff. Like, proud of you. But you really, like, you really think you're, you're like, you've got this thing figured out. You really think the heart of God would be for you to live daily addicted to lust in your heart? And, he, and God would be like, hey, that's okay as long as you don't mess up. As long as none of that spills over until, like, uh, like, actually acting on it. Like, I'm fine with you just going the rest of your life, and you can't look at a person without thinking about it in a weird way, and you, you're addicted up to your eyeballs, and you are lustful. And that's us today. Like, he's talking to a group of people back then that, like, hey, we've mastered the, the, the art of not doing bad stuff. It's the same mirror he's holding up to you and I. It's like a, he, he's raising the standard for what it looks like to operate in the kingdom. He said, hey, it doesn't, you cannot commit, you, there are plenty of people who don't follow Jesus that don't murder and don't steal and don't kill and don't, whatever. But like the ethical standard of Jesus for the followers in the kingdom, he's like, hey, there's so much more for you. There's freedom for your heart. And, and I'm, I'm speaking to whoever you are in the room. There's freedom for you. Let it be tonight. Like we sing about these songs of like, Freedom breaking through and, and wholeness and breakthrough and God moving. Like, let it be tonight. If that's you, like, don't, we'll, we'll do ministry time here in a few minutes. Like, just come up and, and like, if you want to get free of whatever it is, it doesn't even have to be what I'm talking about right now. But the invitation's open. We don't have to wait till next time or next service or next life group or next whatever to get free. He's purchased it for us today. Okay, Matthew 5, 9. We're coming down the final stretch here. Peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay, I literally put in my notes, I almost don't want to say anything. I almost think this speaks for itself. But here's what I'm going to say. You and I are called to make peace. We don't have to agree with everyone. We don't have to like everyone. We don't have to celebrate everyone. But quite literally, for the love of God, we're called to make peace. We're called to pursue peace. It is ridiculous that the world, those that don't follow Jesus, would be better at being able to disagree with someone and still love them and be okay with them and be at peace with them than the church. We've got it way wrong. I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to, to us in the room. But if we as the church, as the bride of Christ, don't learn how to disagree with people and yet still be at peace with them, we're not operating in our fullness as the bride of Christ. I, I'm not saying we celebrate sin. I'm not saying we clap for everyone. I'm not saying we affirm everything. But I think we're, we give Jesus a bad name. When we're, we join in and we're quick to anger, we live in the most polarizing, like, it's, it's nuts. I literally, like, stay up at night thinking about the world that my kids are going to grow up in. 
If it's this bad in 2019, it's this polarizing. If you don't agree with me, you are, you are out. You're the, you are demonized. You are vilified. You, the, the, the most polarizing time in history. And if we as the church are joining in and being quick to anger and quick to make memes and quick to make caricatures and quick to vilify, then why in the world would anyone want to come and meet this Jesus we, we love? Why would anyone want to come to this church when we're joining right in, and the people that don't agree with us, what, what you fill in the blank, I'm not, make, I'm not making any statements up here. But when we're vilifying people, demonizing people that don't agree with us, why in the world? Like, I think we're literally giving Jesus a bad name. So I think we need to slow down a little bit. And this isn't like an attack on social media. This is an attack on our hearts. My heart as well. Like, are we, are we going to be mature enough as people and as followers of Jesus to be able to sit down with someone, have a conversation, disagree completely with their point of view, but seek to understand, seek to love, seek to walk away from whatever that is, whatever encounter that is, whatever chat that is, whatever post that is, whatever coffee date that is, walk away and be like, I disagree with that. But I don't have to, I don't hate them. They're not the enemy. Okay, I'm going to say that this isn't in my notes either, but when you look at the biblical definition of love, I was talking to my friend Andrew Zanako, who's a pastor, and we were talking about this a couple months ago. You start thinking about that classic definition love is patient, love is kind, love is slow to anger. It almost seems like to biblically be able to love someone, there has to be some conflict. Like I, don't, like, I don't need to be told by the Bible to be patient with you, and that's what love is, unless I have a reason to be patient with you and to be kind to you and be slow to anger. I think we've just got this whole thing all it's all warped in our minds in the, in the society and the culture and, 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 the, and the way we live today. Church, can we just pump the brakes and can we just say, we're called to be peacemakers. We're called to be patient and kind. We, don't ha- we, can, we can stand on our convictions. We can believe what we believe to be truth and not hate people. Okay. I'm going to summarize the last three here, Matthew uh, 10 and 11, and I think 12 as well. Do we have that? Yeah, here we go. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so we're talking about persecution. And I was reading, uh, where is it in my notes? Here we go. So sorry, give me one second. Okay, here we go. So uh, as I was studying for this, and I was reading different commentaries on some of these passages, and a pastor, I I read a transcript, I read a part of uh, uh, something he said on this passage right here, 10 through 12. And I literally had that moment where I was like, oh, that's it. That's what we need to hear. And so I started going about, how do I rework this to make it mine? 
Like this is another person's words, and if I can just change some of them and add some pauses and some jokes, like I can pass this off as mine. And that's dumb, so I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to read you what Matt Chandler said a couple years ago about this passage. He said, referring to Matthew 10, uh, 5, 10 through 12, if you're being reviled and hated, people are lying about you and it's true, and it's not because of Jesus, you're probably a jerk and you need to repent. You can't be like, the world hates me because I'm so this or that. No, no, it's pretty clear in the text, it needs to be false and it needs to be because of Jesus. It is a new idea that Christians are not going to be persecuted and that we shouldn't be, that we should be culturally accepted. That is not our history for the majority of our time singing the praises of Jesus. We have been arrested, killed, fed to lions, sawed in two, boiled alive, put in prison, had our stuff looted according to the book of Hebrews, had our houses burned down to the ground. It is a new idea that you and I will be cool enough and argue well enough to be accepted by men and women. In fact, Jesus goes as far as to say you're in a bad spot if everyone speaks well of you. Because if everyone speaks well of you, chances are you've held back living and saying what is true. You have conformed to your environment in a way that is unhealthy for you and really undermines your ability to be salt and light. I just think we should expect to be misunderstood, to be peculiar, to be lied about, and to be falsely accused. They're not true, and yet we should expect such things if we're going to walk in the light and we're going to live the truth of the Word of God fully. I don't have anything else to say on that. I think Matt Chandler got it right. I think you and I, when we count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, we have to count the cost of being misunderstood. We have to count the cost and weigh, are we willing to be okay not being the coolest, trendiest people if it means we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to stay true to what he says about us and how to live. So there it is. There's the Beatitudes. There's the inaugural statement of Jesus as he flips the script on what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And remember, tonight, as I wrap up here, this wasn't a night for you to leave heavy, feeling like you've missed it, that you're not poor in spirit and you're not meek and you're not all these things. But instead, would would we walk away with a desperation for Jesus? That there's more. There's more for us to live within the boundary lines that he's put out for us, that we might be blessed, that we might, we might find freedom and wholeness for ourselves, and that we might live a life truly salt and light, truly affecting other people, truly being able to bring the kingdom into our workplaces, our homes, our schools, our neighborhoods. Would this be a mirror that we get to say, I want to grow? So that's my challenge for you tonight. Don't leave saying, I'm not. Leave saying, I want to grow. It's the, the, this is the mirror of the gospel, that we are not condemned in Christ Jesus, that we've been extended the mercy of heaven. We don't get what we deserve. Instead, what we got was Jesus in our place dying on the cross taking the weight and the penalty and the humiliation and, the, and, and just the horrific nature of what sin does, Jesus took it so that you and I don't have to. And instead, not only was that like, that, 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 he didn't stop there. He said, hey, I'm actually going to purchase you not only salvation, but 
a way for you to live, a way for you and I to live in freedom from the things that not only entangle our, our bodies and the physical things, but our hearts. That He would set us free, that we have an invitation to live abundant. If you're in the room tonight and, and you're like, I need that. I, I, I need the gospel. I need abundance. I need breakthrough. I need freedom. I need wholeness. What, what do I always say? Today is the day of salvation. That's in the book. And they didn't put an end date on it. So I get to say it every time, forever. Today's the day. All we have to do is accept Jesus and start the journey of letting him work on our heart. All these things, all these beatitudes, we get to start the journey of saying, I want to grow in that with you, Jesus, because I want to look more like you because I trust you and I think your way is the best. Let's pray. If you want to bow your heads, the band wants to come up. I'm going to say a simple prayer. And again, Jesus is after your heart. So you, need, you, can, you can say the words I say. You can repeat them after me. You can make them your own. It can be internal, external. The point is the posture of our heart when we come before Jesus. Pray with me. Jesus, I need you. I need that mercy. And I need grace. And I can't do it on my own. I can't be good enough on my own. I've tried. I just can't do it. I believe you are who you say you are. That you're the only way, the only truth, the only life that I can have relationship with you. And I believe you did what you said you did, that you took my pain and my punishment and my humiliation on that cross so that I didn't have to. You purchased me abundant life here and in the next. I trust you and I need you, Jesus. Amen.